Well, we're going to lead up to the Great Council of Trent, the Great Reform Council, uh, which TJ is going to talk about in a few minutes. When you still hear the word today, the Tridentine, the Tridentine Rite, the Tridentine Mass, the Tridentine Practices, so that comes from Trent, from the Great Council of Trent, which was a response to the, uh, the Protestant upheaval. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the lead up to Trent, uh, pre-Trent reform in the church, because there, was, there were reform efforts going on uh, for hundreds of years, for at least, for at least a century prior to uh, Trent. Trent is the middle of the 16th century, 1540, 1550. Back in, the, back in the 15th century, in the 1400s, there were numerous reform movements going on in the church because, uh, because, because people realized that the church was in need of reform because the church is always, always in need of reform. And I mentioned a little bit last time about what happened during the Renaissance, uh, the recovery of classical learning and civilization and, and the new humanism the new learning, as it was called at the time, which was basically a rediscovery of, of an ancient learning, Greek and Roman civilization, which had lain uh, dormant for, uh, in some cases, a thousand years. So as that culture began to be rediscovered and to flow into Western civilization, into Rome, then it brought with it a certain pressure upon uh, traditional Christian beliefs. So the challenge was to reconcile classical learning civilization with Christianity. That was a great accomplishment of Thomas Aquinas back in the 13th century to reconcile Aristotle with Christianity. And Thomas, is, uh, of course, became the doctor of the church. And one of the, one of the canons of Trent was to sort of solidify St. Thomas as the, the uh, sort of church theologian. But anyway, that, that, that pressure of the, of, the, of, the ref, of the Renaissance created a certain um, word we used last week was worldliness. Worldliness. Because, uh, and I, I tried to point out that, uh, that, that, that the Christianity is a worldly, worldly religion because, because it's a religion that reconciles uh, the reconciles the body and the soul. Or the flesh and the spirit. Is it okay to write cursive? I know these days they don't teach that anymore. Flesh and the spirit. Uh, nature and grace. All these terms are in a sense opposites, but and in, in, in the Christian synthesis, they have to be held in, in tension together. Nature and grace, what else? Um, faith and reason. So what the faith, what, what Catholic Christianity does, Catholic meaning, in a sense, universal, the the Christian faith. All the others are 
only have part. <laughs> we have the entire story. So Catholic Christianity is, a, is, a, is sort of a great reconciliation of this tension. And what happened in, in, the, in the Reformation, in the Protestant Reformation, which again was not a Reformation, but a deformation, was a splitting apart of all this. A splitting apart, a rejection of the body, of the world, of worldliness. In a, in a sense, to sort of try to spiritualize the faith. So when that, that because, I think I mentioned last time, Erasmus, the great humanist scholar, came to Rome about the same time Martin Luther did, and Erasmus was blown away at the beauty and the splendor and the learning and the, and the building going on and the art and the, and the world-class geniuses in Rome. Because Erasmus was a Catholic humanist. Uh, when Luther came to Rome, about the same time, he was horrified. Wanted to burn the whole thing down. This is horrible. This is worldly. There's no piety here. In a sense, in a sense both were right, but the, 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 the tension, the key was to reconcile the two. You heard of Savonarola? You heard of that name, Savonarola? Savonarola was, was a uh, Franciscan uh, friar in Florence in the mid-15th century, about 100 years before the Reformation broke. And Savonarola was, was sort of a proto-Protestant. He was sort of a pre-Protestant before... He was a Protestant before Protestantism was cool, sort of, let's put it that way. But what Savonarola did was a little bit like Luther. He was horrified at the worldliness of the Renaissance going on in Florence and began to, uh, to issue these blistering attacks, these Jeremiads on, on the corruption of the clergy and the corruption of the church and the worldliness of, of Florence and drew a group of, of young people toward him and sort of formed this sort of sort of rabble-rousing, uh, revolutionary clique of uh, rabid, rabid monks and friars reforming Florence. And sort of like Luther, he, he, he quickly uh, moved from attacking corruption to attacking the church itself. And then he got into trouble, and he also attacked the Medicis who were ruling Florence. And he was sort of a neo-Puritan Republican. Not in today's terms, but in, the, in, a, in a more of a revolutionary terms, overthrowing the monarchy and setting up a, uh, almost like a Geneva-type government long before Calvin. He initiated something called the Bonfire of the Vanities. You heard that phrase where his followers would run through Florence collecting, asking people to donate books, pictures, jewelry, uh, anything that was too worldly and then he would pile them all up in a great bonfire and burn them burning the vanities burning books and pictures and heirlooms and so forth trying to purify Florence but anyway he got in trouble and the people turned against him and for various reasons and he was burned he was hanged hanged and burned in uh, Florence 
Um, what? Let me see if I can find that date. 1497. If you go to Florence, you can still see a little plaque there in the um, in the Great Square, uh, commemorating the spot where Savonarola. Luther was a big admirer of Savonarola for obvious reasons, and uh, considered him a proto proto Protestant. He was one of the first radical reformers, but there were those who sought to reform the church from within without destroying the entire thing, without destroying a, a thousand years of learning and, and, and faith and, and so forth. One of those was a man named Reginald Pole. That's a, that's, a, that's a name that's worth remembering. Reginald Pole. Have you heard of, probably never heard of, probably never heard of Reginald Pole. Reginald Pole has a distinction of he could have been king of England and he almost became pope. Probably had a, a, stronger, a stronger claim to the English throne than, uh, than the Tudors, than Henry VII and VIII, and missed becoming pope by one vote. Born in 1500, part of the great Plantagenet line in England, uh, obviously nobility, aristocratic heritage, uh, almost became, a, was proposed as a husband to uh, Queen Mary. That didn't work out. Uh, entered the church, uh, educated in Padua with, with um, the great Catholic reformers, Italian reformers, uh, was offered an archbishopric, uh, denied, uh, den uh, turned that down was uh, at the high, highest levels of the court and, and church. And then when Henry uh, decided he wanted a divorce uh, from Catherine to marry his mistress, Anne Boleyn, remember all that from the Reformation, then Paul said no. He broke, broke with Henry and said, no, you can't do that because that's against, that's against church law. So he went from being a favorite of the crown to, uh, to an enemy of the crown because he dared to oppose uh, Henry. So he went to exile in France, uh, denounced uh, Henry VIII and his efforts to, uh, to um, obtain his divorce. Uh, and Henry, uh, furious, sent assassination teams into Europe to try to find Pole and have him either captured or assassinated. Uh, but he managed to survive. He organized resistance to, uh, to Henry. His mother and family, of course, remained in England. They were all arrested by Henry. His mother, Margaret Pole, beautiful, cultured, uh, aristocratic, uh, I mean, just, just a, a very impressive lady, was uh, executed sent to the tower and executed by Henry uh, as, a way to, uh, as a way to get to, to Reginald Pole. He had a brother executed and his mother too. His mother was actually beatified in 1886, Margaret Pole. So anyway, uh, while he was in Rome, 
he became part of a group of reformers, Catholic reformers. Some of them very impressive people. Vittoria Colonna, Italian poet. Uh, has a fascinating history here. Husband was a soldier in the army of Charles V, uh, died in battle. Um, uh, somebody else at the highest levels of the court and, uh, and the church. Uh, Gaspar Contarini, uh, brilliant uh, diplomat, administrator from Venice, uh, formed a group called the Spirituali, the Spirituali, a group of high-minded uh, Catholic uh, diplomats, courtiers, uh, clerics, philosophers, uh, just people, people desperately interested in reforming the church of, of, its, uh, of its corruption. Casparini, Pole, Colonna, Carafa, who became Pope, and also, uh, interestingly, Michelangelo. Michelangelo was part of that group, part of that spirituality group, and had a very passionate friendship with Vittoria Colonna, who was about 15 years younger than him. Matter of fact, held her hand while she died and wrote beautiful sonnets, beautiful sonnets to uh, Vittoria Colonna. But these were uh, spiritually minded people who, who, who wanted to uh, essentially reform the church of financial corruption. I think I mentioned last time, the real, the real issue wasn't so much doctrine, that, although Luther, Luther, I think, used doctrinal disputes uh, as an excuse, but the real, the real issue was, was the power and authority of Rome, particularly the papacy. So the, the, what Luther did was turn very quickly against the Pope, against Rome. And what the reformers within the church, like Carafa and Contarini and Michelangelo and Reginald Pohl realized was the church had become too worldly. Primarily because of uh, because the papacy needed money all the time, because they had an army and a country to run, and that led to simony, the selling of church offices, and that led to nepotism, making your nephews cardinals. I think one pope made his 16 and 17 year old nephews both cardinals. The other problem was multiple benefices, so you might not only have one. Bishopric, you might have three, you might have five, and you got the income from all that, and you lived in Rome, and you never visited your own diocese. So that, the problem with absenteeism and multiple benefices, because these were sources of wealth. So you had hundreds of cardinals living in Rome, living on the wealth of their bishoprics and never visiting their own diocese. One of the great reforms, what the reformers wanted to do was, wait a minute, if you're a bishop, you belong out there, not in Rome. If you're a priest, you belong in your parish, not in Rome. But given human nature, it's a lot more fun in Rome because you have Michelangelo and Bramante and Raphael and better, better food probably and a lot of other pleasures. So the reformers knew that, and the idea was to, was to clean that up. 
get rid of papal dispensations, which was, was a way for the Pope to say, okay, you don't, I'll give you a dispensation and you don't have to reside in your diocese. You can stay in Rome. Given human nature, of course, over years, that became a terrible abuse. And, and that led to ob obvious corruption. But it was primarily uh, financial and administrative corruption. So one of the, what the reformers wanted to do was, again, get back to your, if you're a priest, get back to your parish. If you're a bishop, get back to your diocese. Administer the church. Clean up, clean up your life. Do what you're supposed to do. That, that, was, that would have been the true Reformation. If those people had been listened to, and some popes tried to do that, if they had been listened to, there would have been essentially no Protestant Reformation because the doctrinal issues were secondary, in my opinion. The so, Catholic Church changed all the doctrine during the kind of Reformation. Not really. What the, what the church did was to reaffirm the doctrine that Luther wanted to change. Well, one of the doctrines, we'll get to this later, but one of the doctrines, the great crux of the issue was justification. How is a man saved? Is it sola fide, sola scriptura, like Luther said, scripture only, faith only, or is it through cooperation with God's grace works and faith, nature and grace, flesh and spirit, body and soul. The church just reaffirmed that. Luther wanted to essentially split it apart. This would be the process of big argument for us. I mean, I have, I have arguments all the time about this. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> about justification? Yeah. Right, right. They always accuse us of works righteousness. You heard that. Right. But that's, that's nonsense. That's the Catholic theology for 2,000 years. We cooperate with God's grace. What Luther said was change the entire structure. What Luther did was invent a new method of salvation which had, which had never been church teaching. It was essentially, we're saved by the arbitrary decision of God regardless of our merit or anything we do. Most of that came about because of his uh, inability to to, to uh, satisfy himself on exactly, exactly. There were exactly Luther had had serious psychological issues. Right, couldn't could not feel himself worthy or to be saved. So simply invented the idea that well, God will save me anyway. Right. Oh, absolutely, and I think TJ is going. TJ is going to talk about some of the geopolitical pressures leading up to Trent. Absolutely, rise of nationalism, the princes. Right, that, that's a good point. Now there were there were there were those in the in the church that took a um, a less than correct view of justification and rejected not only Luther but any idea of faith and. And grace, and, and 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 that was wrong too. What the reform, as a matter of fact, Reginald Pole was accused eventually by Pope 
Pius IV, rather puritanical pope, of being a heretic, of being too close to the Protestants because they were trying to reconcile this whole idea of, of justification by saying, yes, we are saved by faith, but not only by faith. And scripture is necessary, but not only scripture. So instead of sola scriptura, the reformers would say scriptura. Instead of sola fides, fides. We're saved by grace through faith. So those were those were doctrinal issues. We'll get to those as we get into trend. There were there were years and years of discussion in Trent on that issue. So anyway, back to Reginald Poe, he was part of this incredible group of, of reformers called spirituality in in uh, see the, the Catholic Reformation um, as we talk about church reform there, there, there are sort of two two uh, streams two, two directions in which reform can go uh, one is sort of the renaissance direction the humanist Catholic humanist quote, renaissance direction in which the church is reformed of corruption and is still open to faith and reason and the new learning and classical civilization. Then there is uh, there's another way in which reform could go and, and that's toward uh, Puritanism, toward a more a stern, a more a sterner, a more uh, Doer, a more, in a sense, negative way. And there were Renaissance popes, reformers, and there were popes like uh, like Pius IV, who uh, sort of went in a more puritanical direction, setting up the uh, index, setting up the Inquisition, uh, condemning Reginald Poe at one point. So there was always that pressure, always that pressure. Renaissance or Puritanism? Anyway, uh, Poe, uh, obviously when, when uh, Queen Mary ascended the throne and, in England, and once again England had a Catholic monarch, Catholic queen, uh, he of course was able to return to England. Henry was dead, Edward was dead, uh, Mary was welcomed with open arms, and Reginald Poe came back to England, was made archbishop, and uh, set about restoring the church in England. Set about, set about returning England to the, the Catholic faith it had enjoyed for the last thousand years. And, uh, and it was pretty successful in that, except Mary um, got, uh, we won't get into all that, but probably got some bad advice and uh, began to burn um, Protestant heretics. Reginald Poe tried to ameliorate that a little bit, tried to lighten some of those sentences without much success. And then um, when Mary died, Reginald Poe died same day same day and then of course England returned uh, violently back to uh, 
back to the, uh, the Protestant reformers when Elizabeth came to the throne. So that's Reginald Pohl, and that's the spirituality. Contarini, the great reformer, part of the spirituality group, he, interestingly, under Paul III, uh, who welcomed sort of a Renaissance pope, but he also welcomed criticism. He welcomed suggestions for reform. So this group put together a rather well-known, became a bestseller at the time, called Concilium de Emendanda Ecclesia. A program for reforming the church, essentially, in which he laid out abuses, worldliness, secularism, how the church become involved so much in, in financial shenanigans and, and political machinations, uh, and pretty much attacked simony and absenteeism. You ever you heard of a book called uh, The Courtier by Boston? Baldassare Castiglione was a bestseller during the, the Renaissance. Uh, one, wonderful book. I'd recommend that. It's a fascinating book. Uh, it's set at the court of Urbino. Uh, Lord Kenneth Clark says Urbino was the perfect uh, Renaissance court at that time. Under Guido de Montefelto, the great Renaissance prince in uh, but the book of the courtier, Castiglione, is, is a sort of a, a great glimpse of, of the Catholic Renaissance. Since a great, basically, uh, just a bunch of people sitting around talking and discussing and debating virtue. What does it mean to be a gentleman? What does it mean to be a lady? What does it mean to be brave? What does it mean to be virtuous? It's a fascinating, fascinating account of... Uh, of Catholic Christianity during the Renaissance. The last uh, factor I would mention really briefly, and TJ may get into this, is the shocking, the earth-shattering sack of Rome in 1527, which sort of, sort of um, focused everybody's attention on the fact that things need to change that, of course, mentioned last time, Rome was brutally sacked by um, mutinous German troops under, ostensibly under Charles, under Charles, but of course he wasn't there. Their commander was killed and they essentially mutinied because they hadn't been paid and decided to take it out on Rome. And estimated as many as 15, 20,000 people might have been murdered, slaughtered in the sack of Rome. Now, the Pope managed to escape by scurrying through that little passage over to the Castle San Angelo, been to Rome, and held out there. The Swiss guard was massacred on the steps of St. Peter's. And on May the 6th, and the interesting side note, Swiss guard installation ceremony today is held on May the 6th to commemorate the bravery of the Swiss Guard who were massacred by mutinous German Protestants <laughs> in 1527. But that was a shocking event. 
that focus everybody's attention on the need for reform. How was that initially, how was that put down? Just, just petered out. Just ran out of buildings to sack and people to kill and things to steal, eventually. And eventually they managed to get control and an army came in and eventually cleaned it up. But it was a, it was a Rome's population went from like 90,000 to like 10,000 because the plague struck after that. Absolutely horrible time. Absolutely horrible. But again, that's one of the, that sort of sets the stage too for Trent. Oh, I would recommend, I always recommend a book. Do you know Father Rutler, priest in New York, had a program on EWTN at one time, Father George Rutler. He has a wonderful book called A Crisis of Saints. The chapter in here called Romanism, about Rome, which I highly recommend. Great book, A Crisis of Saints, George Rutler. If you're ever in New York, he's priest at St. Michael the Archangel down on 34th, 35th, somewhere right in the old garment district. George Rutler, R-U-T-L-E-R. I visited him in New York at his parish and invited him to Greenville. And he said, oh, I know Father Newman. But, uh, I said, come to Greenville. And he said, you don't have a subway. So. All right, so I was going to give the background a little bit of the Council of Trent. And then next week, we're actually going to go through the canons of Trent, and this is just going to be a little more of the overview, but then also white. I mean, it's a lot of just really interesting history that goes with it. But I think key things to start with is your basic map. Oh, yeah, the Mercury doesn't work. All right. There you go. Here's northern Italy. Here you go. We'll put Venice right here. You've got Milan up here, and then you've got mountains. Right? So, and then Switzerland's up here. So, you're, France is over here. Rome's, Florence is here. Rome's down here. Um, that, that's a sort of a key thing. Because one of the things, remember the background of everything that's going on, is you've got the Pope. I mean, Italy is a bunch of independent city-states, but the biggest organized part is the Papal States. And the so you've got Bologna up here, which is sort of the, the big, biggest city within the Papal States. But then you've got some independent places like Milan and Venice. But then you have the Holy Roman Empire up here, which is capital in Venice. I mean, not Venice. Ven um, bring cramp. Vienna. Vienna, there you go. Thank you. Um, and then you've got France up here. And the majority of what's going on is you have these giant rivalries, political stuff going on while you have all this religious stuff. And it's political rivalries between Catholics. You've got France, which is a Catholic country, the, the oldest daughter of the church. And you've got the Holy Roman Empire ruled by Charles V. Um, he's also the king of Spain. He's sort of the greatest defender of the Catholic Church alive at the time. And then you've got, obviously, the Pope himself who's in charge of here. 
And there's a lot of rivalry between the three at different times that's going to cause lots of trouble and make it really difficult to actually reform the church. Because part of the problem is while the Reformation starts up in Germany, up in the Holy Roman Empire, that the emperor and the pope had been politically at odds for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, that I was going to say, you can go all the way back to Frederick Barbarossa in the Middle Ages, like the time of the Crusades. He was contemporary with Richard the Lionheart. And him and the Pope were deadly like enemies. And that that rivalry had been going back and forth for a long, long time. So those are key things to remember in the background. So, 1517, remember we did our few dates. That's when the Reformation starts, Martin Luther, 1517. Um, Tony mentioned 1527 is when Rome gets sacked. And to actually, that was a key part that I was going to mention that with the sack of Rome, that you had the war going on pretty much continually between France and the Holy Roman Empire. So while all this stuff's going on with Martin Luther, you can imagine you're Charles V. You have problems all around you. You've got Protestantism rising up in your country. So you've got Martin Luther and his followers. And you have your own princes who are joining him and rioting against you. And then you also have the king of France who's always wanting to fight against you. And then we aren't even going to really get into the fact that you have giant Muslim hordes attacking from this direction and even laying siege to Vienna um, at this time. And that's actually a... Con the Muslims are the continual thing in the background that all this that we sort of forget during this period that uh, 1453 you have Constantinople was sacked and actually with this renaissance you have all of these Greeks coming to our Italy and that's actually one of the reasons why they have this restoration of Greek learning but you have also I mean but this sort of shapes everything the first thing ever printed on the printing press by Gutenberg was the Turk calendar, which was a pamphlet warning about the invading Turks. Um, you have, I mean, just name for world history, like that you had all the trade routes that used to go through Constantinople, which couldn't happen anymore. So they have to start looking for new ways to get over to India and the Indies. So what do they start doing? You have people like Christopher Columbus that say, hey, maybe if we go around the other direction, um, we don't have to run into the Muslims. Like, I mean, that's just, and that's going on, sent by Isabel and Ferdinand that we're talking about last week. That there's a reason why this is a confusing time period, because there is so much going on at the same time. You got Muslim stuff, explorers, kings, battles, and then you have all during it, all these religious questions. So, 1527, 10 years after Luther, you had, see how, like a perfect example of all this mess coming together when you've got Charles V at war with Francis I, King of France, and Charles, he's the guy in charge of trying to put down Lutheranism. And what's the army that he's using made up of? Lutheran mercenaries. Because that was the other key back then, is you didn't actually use your own soldiers. You hired mercenaries. Everybody did all the time. Um, and so he's using Lutheran mercenaries while simultaneously fighting his Lutherans. Um, I mean, you don't have to know these details, but just sort of seeing like, wow, this is kind of a messy time period. Like, history is so messy. If you like nice, clean, orderly, like linear history, this isn't the time period for you. Um, so 
That's why it's Charles V's own troops who are Lutherans who end up sacking Rome. But this is key because it's at this time you have the church. It's like, okay, maybe this Protestant problem is bigger than we thought in general. That, the, that for the first 10 years, you can, things go slow back then. You don't have trains. You don't have electricity. Everything's going by, carried by hand on foot or horseback. And things just go so slowly. Um, armies travel slowly. You have news that's passed slowly. You have every couple of years in different places the plague coming back. Like, things just move very slowly. So for the first 10 years, the church is not entirely sure what to make of this Martin Luther guy. Is he just another... Um, any ordinary heretic? Is he a, a reformer? Like, what is he? So they send messenger, but it takes a long time sort of working out problems. Ten years down the road, Rome gets sacked. The church starts thinking, hey, maybe this is a bigger problem than we thought, and we need to actually um, address this as we have sort of some of the bigger heresies throughout history. And what's the normal way that the church usually addresses a big heresy? And that is they call an ecumenical council. Because remember, within the Catholic Church, when the, this is the basic teaching that the infallible, infallibility of Scripture alongside the tradition of the Church, which we say is contained within the Pope himself in his teaching office, the liturgy, but then also within ecumenical councils, the meeting of all the bishops under the Pope. And ecumenical councils, that they're never proactive. They don't meet to try to address problems beforehand. They wait till the questions are raised, and then they are called to address the questions. That's why like every ecumenical council throughout history, usually it starts with a heresy. So you have like Gnosticism, denying the, or no, sorry, Arianism is the one I was referring to, denying the divinity of Christ. They call the Council of Nicaea to reaffirm the divinity of Christ. So they wait till something's questioned, and then they address it. So they're like, okay, we need an ecumenical council to address this. And so by 1529, you've got calls for an ecumenical council. Maybe we can start getting the wheels in motion, but it doesn't happen. And why? The political mess of everything that's going on. And actually, the Council of Trent, which I'll get to in a second, is going to end up meeting between 1545 and 63 and three different times, etc. And you really see sort of the mess of the period by this fact. That it takes them 16 years from when they actually want the council to actually get it off the ground, and it takes 18 years to actually finish the thing. So what takes 16 years? All of these elements working together is why. You've got the Lutherans who, and the Lutheran princes who thought they should be allowed to come and vote at the ecumenical council. Why not? Um, and the Pope, who's argued, well, that's absurd. If you don't accept the authority of an ecumenical council and the authority of the Pope who promulgates the ex ecumenical councils, you're not invited. Um, but they were rather violent about it and threatened to attack if they were to do so. And they especially thought, it sh if they're going to have one, where should it meet? It should meet in Germany. And Charles V also thought, hey, it should meet in Germany. Because that's where the problem is. If the problem's taking place in Germany, that's where it should meet. The Italians and the Pope, they all thought, well, it should meet in Italy. Because Italy is basically some of the staunchest defenders of the church teaching. It should meet there. And then where, of course, do you think 
the king of France wanted it to meet France. Um, I mean, and it's a complete mess. And actually, the, um, and it, because of the fact that finally, when they decide, well, we will meet in, right up here, but sort of try to appease everybody, northern Italy, southern Germany, this sort of region where Trent is, that, okay, that doesn't appease everybody, that appeases Charles. So Charles and the Pope are happy with it, but who's still not happy? The King of France, because it's not there. So what does he do? He refuses to let any of the French bishops come. So, so long and short, 16 years go by of like trying to actually get this off the ground when you've got armies perpetually at war with each other, you have all of these rivalries going back and forth, and it's you can imagine if you're the Pope trying to actually get this off the ground that you'd be ready to just like pull your hair out by the time. And actually the Pope who was working to do so, um, Clement, the, there's, you, the Council of Trent goes through six different Popes. Um, so the, who was, I'm trying to remember, I think it was Clement the, not seventh, was it Clement the seventh? Um, that he was the one that was trying to get it off the ground and he finally just sort of gave up. And he's like, you know what, fine. And so, it's actually going to be Pope Paul III. Um, you don't have to know all these popes, but it's Pope Paul III who finally says, like, who cares if Francis is going to still throw fits? And actually, the king of France is dead at this time, and it's a new king, Henry II, and he's just as bad as the last one, just as obnoxious as the last one. And so finally, the Pope Paul III says, like, I don't care, we're just doing it. Uh, like, the reform has to happen. We're just going to do it. So he convokes the Council of Trent with his famous papal bull, um, Laetare Jerusalem, Rejoice Jerusalem. And it was set to meet on March 15th um, and of 1545. And the Ides of March, Julius Caesar was killed. Um, which is just a side note. But that actually the date came and went, and they ended up delaying all the way to December because, like I said, the king of France was still throwing a hissy fit. He refused to even promulgate the bold of letting the French people even know that it was happening. And so they continued negotiations, and finally the king of France relented and decided he would send his bishops, even though they arrived late. Um, and they... So Trent's up here. And they finally get together and meet. And even then, it was like and Charles V almost pulled out at the last moment because the church had two things it needed to address that Tony mentioned before. You have discipline and you have doctrine, meaning you have all of these abuses that are going on within the discipline of the church in particular, the financial abuses. You have the problem we mentioned last week of uneducated priests. Um, you have bishops who aren't very good guys. You've got the bishops with the multiple dioceses. You've got nepotism. You've got simony. You have all these discipline problems going on that aren't matters of doctrine, official church teaching. It's, these are all against church teaching, but people were doing them all anyway. Um, so they had to address that. But then there was also the doctrine question, that Martin Luther and his followers were attacking church teaching and all these key issues. Are they going to address those issues? Is the church going to quote-unquote cave? Or are they going to double down? Um, Etc. And Charles V, when I said he almost 
withdrew. The reason why was he wanted the church only to address the discipline issues. He's like, please don't even talk about the doctrine issues. And the reason why is he was hoping to bring back all of the Lutherans. Um, he's like, hey, if you like, just don't even mention it, don't even talk about those issues, and maybe we can like let them still be a part of the church, but still be Lutherans somehow. Like, if we can just get rid of the abuses, maybe that'll be enough. And we can't we all just get along? Um, was what he was hoping for. But when the the, the council finally meets at Trent. Um, and actually, the key man the first, during the first meeting is um, a Spanish theologian named Domingo de Soto, um, who's probably the key theologian at the first meeting, that they decided, you know what? Like, sorry, Charles, we're addressing both, and we're doing them at the exact same time. And so the, 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 probably the most important of all the meetings and it takes place, is basically they meet like nine times over, um, i trying to remember how much time, it's like over like a, a year and a half, is the first set of meetings in Trent with Domingo de Soto, and they go through, and the first things they do is they basically attack all of these discipline issues one by one head on, but then they also attack Luther, Luther's heresies one by one. So they address, well, how is man saved? So the first time they do a, um, they, basically they go through, and we'll go in more detail next week and say that if you say that you're saved by faith alone, like, you're completely wrong. But if you say that you're saved by works, you're also completely wrong. And they go through and they address, like, how is man saved? They address the issue of uh, scripture and tradition. And they, as um, I mentioned before, with they do exactly what Charles didn't want them to do in that they don't cave on anything. In fact, they double down, which is actually going to be, if you want, the key theme of the Counter-Reformation, that there's always this question within the church that when addressing complaints, trying to address the culture, trying to address others, do you try to meet them halfway or do you just unabashedly um, double down on everything? And the Counter-Reformation technique with everything is just going to be the, the old double down. So Lutheran complaints later on, and we'll talk about this with art, against isn't the church being too ornate? Because think of Savonarola, talking about like the vanities, like aren't the beautiful art distracting from God, etc. Shouldn't churches be a little simpler? That the church's response at this time period is going to say, you know what, we're going to make them more ornate. Um, like, if you think that that was too ornate, like, wait until we discover it all in gold. Um, and, oh, you think that, that I mean, so this is sort of going to be the, the theme, and it actually is going to be remarkably successful and lead to, like I said, one of the greatest sort of flourishings in the Catholic Church. But they address them both. Now, the thing about Trent, though, so I said it takes 16 years to actually start, but it takes 18 years to actually finish, is... Um, well, the first time is that they meet for a couple years, they do a lot, and then what happens? The plague hits, and they have to flee Trent. And so they say, hey, like, let's flee, um, let's go down to Bologna, there's no plague here, and we can finish. But Charles V, remember, he wanted it up in Germany, he, didn't, he still has a bit of a rivalry with the Pope, and the... And so they, he didn't want it there, so he decided, you know what, like, 
you can go meet there, but I'm not letting my people come. So all the Spanish bishops were forbidden from going because he's the king of Spain too. And the Spanish bishops were the ones driving everything that the vast majority of the bishops at Trent were Spanish bishops. I think there's something like 145 bishops at Trent and like 90 of them were from Spain. Um, Yeah, the first session. That they were the ones, like it's um, Spain who's leading everything. And remember when I talked about that last week, was it last week when I talked about Cardinal Jimenez in Spain, that they had reformed years before, and they were the most, they had their universities, they were basically the most reformed in the true sense, um, the, the most educated sort of devout country, and so that's why they're sort of leading the reform. Um, but, so, finally, but Charles won't let the Spanish bishops come, so they Pope finally says, like, fine, like, we have to suspend the council until we can actually get it back together. Um, But then the problem is, so Paul suspends the council in 1547, but then he dies. So when I say they go through five popes, so you've got Paul III dies, he was replaced by Julius III, um, and they finally, like, two years later, they're, they're like, okay, let's finally meet again, and... Um, but they, they, and they finally, they send some, some guys that they reconvene in Trent because the plague has finally worked its way out and they started to do a couple of different things, but then surprise, surprise, a marauding army of Lutherans starts coming towards the city, threatening to kill them all. And so they have to flee the city and suspend the council again, um, they, they meet, they have like eight short meetings, but then they get suspended again. Um, and then Julius III dies, the Pope, so you get a new, another Pope, um, Mar- Marcellus II, um, but he's only Pope for 22 days, so he obviously doesn't get it going again, and then he dies. Um, and then you get another Pope, Paul IV, who he... You still have the king of France. You've got the emperor. All of these problems again. He's like, forget this. This is not worth the trouble. He's like, I'm just going to do it myself. Um, he's like, I don't need a council um, to make all these reforms happen. I'm going to do it myself. So, um, so Paul the Fourth starts doing a bunch of reforming himself, and he actually does a pretty decent job and starts the, ref- the reform within the church, um, trying to clean up the mess. But he mostly is doing discipline stuff. He's not, he's not addressing the doctrine. And remember, while the Council of Trent had written those things all the way back, this is 10 years later, like 10 years before, they haven't been promulgated to the church. They have an ecumenical council when it does a decree. They, they come up with the decree they're going to do. The bishops there vote on it, but it doesn't become official church teaching and get sent everywhere until the Pope, basically, he's the one that promulgates it. And he's the one that sends it forth, and then they, and, and then it becomes official. So that's never happened because the council's not over yet. It's not till it's over that anything gets promulgated. So, um, so any all, so they've done all this great work at Trent, but it's basically at this point it's useless because until they actually are able to finish, it can't actually get promulgated and do anything. Does that make sense so far? All right. So finally, Paul the fourth dies, and it's going to be Pius the fourth who the one that Tony was a little hard on, but he does a little, actually a lot of great stuff too. He's a mixed bag. Um, Pius IV that finally calls for the last meeting and 
the, the problem at the last meeting of the council, which is, and you have, it's funny, you have different figures at different times, because this is like a multi-generational council. It takes so long um, that you have different bishops at the last meeting than we're at the first meeting. Because you can imagine a lot of the bishops that were at the first meeting are dead by the time you get to the last meeting. And you have like ones that are bishops in the last meeting were like either young priests or not even ordained at the time of the first meeting. So the last meeting, you have the problem, once again, of the French, but it's the French bishops who are causing problems on the behest of the king that they decided that what they really wanted first and foremost was the council to... Um, to promote a doctrine, a quote-unquote doctrine that the French king really liked called Gallicanism, which is actually named after Gallican, after France. And that is sort of that the king of France thought that the pope is the nominal head of the church, but really the king is the practical head of the church within his own country. Um, and it's basically everything that Henry VIII was saying in England, that the king of France wanted the same thing for himself. Um, but that it for but for it to be um, approved with like a wink and a nod by the church. And so even the last meeting at Trent was a bit of a struggle, and it was actually the Pope's nephew. Um, so not all nepotism necessarily turns out bad. The Pope's ne nephew, who is the Archbishop of Milan, St. Charles Borromeo, that leads the last meeting at Trent and squashes the idea of Gallicanism and reaffirms, like, no, the Pope is the head of the church, not just in name only. The, um, and so it ends up finally able to finish the council, and then Pius IV is able to promulgate the decrees and then actually start acting upon them one by one. And we'll get into, like I said, next week the stuff that they do, but... Um, but they create seminaries for the first time, the first seminary system that before, like I said, the only priests that actually had anything resembling a true seminary system were the Franciscans and the Dominicans who had their houses of study. And so they follow the model of those and they make a seminary system for all the priests. They crack down on anyone having multiple benefices and like that has, that's done away with. They put an, an utter stop to simony, to nepotism, um, and they go one by one that th they have put in much higher standards for priests to be worthy of their calling, um, for virtuous bishops. And so the discipline, like they, they don't back away for anything. The Pope, when he promulgates the decrees, he sends basically a, um, a profession of faith that every single priest and bishop in the entire world has to sign um, reaffirming the Catholic teaching as promulgated by Trent. Um, and we'll get into more, like I said, later on, but he's going to make a catechism for them to have to know. They're going to reform the liturgy to make it a little um, more uniform and straightforward because different countries over time had adopted different cultural practices that they're going to say, like, they're going to basically streamline it into just how it was done in Rome. Um, Anyway, there's going to be a lot of great stuff that's going to come in, actually directly from Trent. But it, you see, it's why it's such a mess, though, and why it takes so long, because the time period was a mess. Um, I mean, but I said, like, there's so much going on in such a little period of time. So 1527, 
You want to even tie in another country? That's the exact same time. So when the Lutherans are marauding through Rome, the Pope's held up in his council, that's when Henry VIII's messengers showed up trying to get his annulment from Catherine, who was Henry's army, that's his niece, um, or no, he was, that's his aunt. Um, so you can imagine, like, it's all tied together, this giant, messy, um, like, if you like mess, then you love this time period. But if you don't, then it can be a very frustrating time period. But it's all intertwined together in this short little segment um, of history. Um, like I said, next week we're actually going to go through Trent. That's what we're going to do. And um, it's pretty straightforward, pretty easy to read. Um, and it's actually a very clear and concise. And one of the great beauties of church teaching for every time up until the 20th century is brevity. That the church has always had a very good jo- done a very good job of being very concise and clear in, um, within its doctrines. And until, like I say, the 20th century when people lost the ability to think in clear, brief manners. So there's a reason why we'll get into another time, but like I said, Vatican II is all the doc- documents are longer than every promulgation of every council in history up until that point. Um, that Vatican II is twice as long as all of it. Um, so, I mean, part of it is, like the 20th century, we lost a little bit of that ability to say clean and clear in one sentence, but now we take a paragraph to say. But So it's, that's one of the things, though, it makes a lot of the older stuff actually pretty easy to read um, because it's not like reading things nowadays where you have a whole page trying to explain justification. Like, they do it in three sentences in a very clear, concise manner. So we'll get into that next week. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Amen. God, our Father, you sent your Son into the world to be its true light. Pour out the Holy Spirit he promised us to sow the truth in men's hearts and awaken them to the obedience of faith. May all men be born again to new life and baptism and so enter the fellowship of your one holy church. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Amen.